Welcome to Slaking Thirsts, a podcast that's all about bringing the thirst deep within our hearts for love and communion to the heart of Christ, a divine heart, who is seeking our love and communion in return. The hope is that the two thirsts would meet and both thirsts would be slaked. So here's where I want to start tonight. I want to start with, uh, a lot of you know I'm a huge fan of C.S. Lewis. I want to start with a little C.S. Lewis for us tonight from a very... I, from, a, I guess, an obscure little essay that he has. It's called Meditation in a Tool Shed. It appears in his collection of um, essays that are called God in the Dock, essays on theology and ethics. So in this Meditation on a Tool Shed, I'm just going to read the first few paragraphs. He says this, setting the stage. I was standing today in the dark tool shed. The sun was shining outside and through the crack at the top of the door, there came a sunbeam. From where I stood, that beam of light, with the specks of dust floating in it, was the most striking thing in the place. Everything else was almost pitch black. I was seeing the beam. I was seeing the beam, not seeing things by it. We read that last sentence there. I was seeing the beam, not seeing things by it, right? So picture yourself in this dark space with a little beam of light coming in through the top of the door, just like this. And you're standing here and you're looking at this beam of light. You can see the dust. You can see all the little particles floating in it. And what are you doing? You are seeing the beam, not seeing things by it. Let me keep going. He says, then I moved so that the beam fell on my eyes. Instantly, the whole previous picture vanished. I saw no tool shed and above all, no beam. Instead, I saw framed in the irregular cranny at the top of the door, green leaves moving on the branches of a tree outside. And beyond that, 90-odd million miles away, the sun. Looking along the beam and looking at the beam are very different experiences, he says. Looking along the beam and looking at the beam are very different experiences. But this is only a very simple example of the difference between looking at and looking along. So you see this difference here that he's talking about. In the tool shed, looking at the beam of light, then picture yourself moving into where it's coming down, and then it goes right on your eye, and now you are in the beam, and you see at the top of the door. You don't see the beam anymore. Now you see the top of the door frame. You see outside of the door. You see the leaves rustling in the trees. And then even beyond that, 90, he says 90 some odd million miles away, you see the sun. The experience, he's trying to draw our attention to the experience, the difference between looking at the thing and looking along the thing. Okay, I want us to hold this image in our minds tonight. Making this jump between looking at the thing and looking along the thing is what we're getting at tonight. And if right now you're just kind of like, I don't know what that means. Stay with me, stay with me, okay? Because we have been trained by our modern world to look at the world 
around us rather than to look along the world around us. In other words, we've been conditioned to see the world as merely there, as simply objectively there with nothing beyond it, right? So George Weigel, who was John Paul II's great biographer, he wrote this, this, he described this worldview that we have been bathed in as he calls it the Gnostic imagination, the Gnostic imagination. He says, this fragmented and impoverished vision of the world will say on the one hand that the material world is all that there is. And on the other hand, say that the material world doesn't really matter. A Gnostic vision doesn't see nature, our bodies, place, or any other material thing as signaling a deeper, more profound spiritual reality. And thus, this is the crucial line, and thus there's no meaning in the material world except that what we assign it. It's not holy, it's just a thing to be used, abused, or thrown away. Okay. So what tonight's about, what we're looking at tonight, this sacramentality, this sacramental worldview, this Catholic way of seeing things, right? This is, we're being invited tonight, I want to invite you to see the world Catholicly, to see the world like a Catholic, to see the world like a Christian, to see the world like Jesus, right? To see the world as we were meant to see the world, which is to say we are meant to look along the world, not just simply at the world. The difference between looking at the beam to looking along the beam, okay? We're going to get there slowly, but this, I, it's, just, it's just such a different way of thinking that it's just, it takes a little time to adjust ourselves into this like, oh, okay, okay. This is a very different way of thinking, right? That, there's a way that Catholics see the world around us. There's a way that we see. There's a way that we think. There's a way that we perceive reality and events around us, right? Because the stuff of the world around us, it's all meant to be like a signpost to like the hidden reality of the one who created it, right? Everything around us is, is pointing to something beyond, right? To look along it, to see the sun 90 million miles away. Everything around us is trying to communicate something so much greater, right? All of creation is trying to sing this song of something so much greater. That's what we're soaking in tonight, right? Everything around us, all of creation is communicating God's divine life to us. Everything is singing this song. Remember that video I showed you of the flowers, right? The flowers are proclaiming the gospel. The birds, the bugs, the the bullfrogs, the lightning bugs, they're all proclaiming the gospel. The pollen wafting through the air, it's proclaiming the gospel. All of it, everything in creation is pointing to something deeper. So learning how to read, if you will, learning how to understand God's sign language is so crucial. It's so crucial. It's such an important thing in this whole becoming Catholic journey. Um, because God speaks, if you will, in sign language. All of creation is this great sign through which God is speaking. Or we can put it another way. We could say that, um, yeah, that through creation, God is communicating this great story. In other words, to be Catholic is to see the world differently. It's to see the world differently. So, I know tonight's topic, this might feel like, uh, why, why, why are we spending time talking about this, right? 
Maybe you're not even thinking that. I'm just insecure. Okay, maybe. I don't know. Um, Deacon made the popcorn. Unless we forgot. Okay. Like, I'm thinking about when I was in seminary, one of my classmates, Father James Colway, who's uh, he's now the administrator at St. Barnabas in Northfield. He's an amazing priest. When we were in seminary together, we'd be in these classes. And, his, and James would often say, when we were reading all sorts of other things that just were less than inspiring, James would have, he would use this phrase, he would say, why don't they just give us the gold? Give us the gold, right? Give us the church fathers, give us the tradition, let us soak in the gold. And I can, I, I sense in myself, I just want to address the objection at the outset here that like, this might not seem like the gold, but I promise you it's like, it's the, it's the appetizer and it's, it's capacitating you to receive what we're, where we're going, right? Because we are going to spend a lot of time looking at the sacraments, looking at baptism, confirmation, Eucharist, marriage, celibacy, anointing, reconciliation. We're going to spend time several weeks looking at these sacraments, but if you don't learn how to view reality like a Catholic, you won't understand the sacraments. Like if you don't understand how we view creation, you're not going to understand how the God who made creation uses little bits of creation to communicate his divine life to us. In other words, if you only think that all we can do is look at creation as like looking at the beam, that, like, that there's nothing beyond that the sacraments are not going to make sense. So this is absolutely foundational. I'm just, I'm just trying to justify what we're doing here tonight, right? This is absolutely foundational. This is absolutely foundational for understanding um, where we're going after this, right? So it's hard to miss in the Gospels. It's hard to miss as you re- if you read the Gospels that Jesus seems to be very interested in our vision. Um, over and over and over again, he's, he's talking about Blindness. The Pharisees are blind guys. He heals Bartimaeus of his blindness. The, the man at the pool of Siloam, he spits on the ground, makes mud, smears it in his eyes. Very gross remedy for blindness, right? Um, heals his eyes, right? All of these things, all of these things. Jesus is very interested in our vision. He says, also at a certain point, and I think it's John's gospel, they look, speaking of this generation, of all these people, they look, but they do not see And then he adds this. He says, as an invitation to the disciples of John the Baptist, come and become one who sees. I think I've brought this up at different points in becoming Catholic so far, but that invitation from Jesus, come and become one who sees. We're being invited by the Lord to see reality rightly. That part of, the, part of the consequence of the fall is that our intellects were darkened, which is another way of saying that we've stopped perceiving reality as we were intended to see it. We stopped looking along the beam and started only looking at the beam. That's the difference. In case you don't believe me about this, I got some bishop backup here. Because, you know, you always got to have a little bishop backup. Bishop Robert Barron. Christianity is above all a way of seeing. See, I told you so. All right. What unites figures as diverse as James Joyce, Caravaggio, John Milton, the architect of Chart, Dorothy Day, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and the later, the, later, the later Bob Dylan is a peculiar and distinctive take on things, a style, a way which flows finally from Jesus of Nazareth, space bar. Origen remarked that holiness is seeing with the eyes of Christ. Teilhard de Chardin said with great passion that his mission as a Christian thinker was to help people see. 
And Thomas Aquinas said that the ultimate goal of the Christian life is a beatific vision, an act of seeing. It's an act of seeing. So, Bishop, back up. You believe me now? We're good? Yes? Okay? All right. Argument from authority. Here we go. So, seeing the world rightly, seeing the world rightly, this is what we're being invited into because, like, we need a little brainwashing right now because our brains are a little bit scrambled and dirty, right? We need our brains to be washed. We need Jesus to come in and cleanse our way of viewing reality. So, give me a space bar. It all begins right here. It begins in the beginning, right? Genesis 1. God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very decent. Isn't that what your Bible says? <laughs> Just kidding. No, give me another space bar. Behold, it was very good. Okay. So I make sure we're all paying attention. Okay. He says this. He looks at all that he's, he has made, and behold, it is very good. Right, the, the, the cadence of Genesis 1, the story of creation, everything emanating forth from the mind of God. Let there be light, and it, there is light. And God saw, and it was good. Right? Let the waters separate. They separate. God saw, and it was good. Everything is good. It's good, it's good, it's good. The sea is good. The sky is good. The land is good. The bugs are good. The fish are good. It's all good. It's all good. There's not a corner or crevice of creation that God could not look at. There's not a corner or crevice of creation that God couldn't look at and just say, like, admiring like a master sculptor, it's good. That was really good, Grand Canyon. That was really good, right? He looks at everything and says it's very good. This is so important for us because all throughout the, the centuries of Christianity, heresies have emerged. They've come up, they've gone down that essentially do not buy into this first premise, this first principle, right? Manichaeism, which was a huge heresy around the time of St. Augustine, and it really, it still exists in a sort of Gnostic form today, but Manichaeism was this heresy, this idea that says that the material world is the world of the, the demonic, the dark forces, the material universe is evil. The spiritual realm, that's the good and holy place. We can even simplify it this way. Spirit good, body bad. Spirit good, body bad. So this gets applied to our own physicality, our own materiality, that the problem to be overcome is that we are these spirits trapped in these bodies. This is also kind of platonic, like think of like the philosopher Plato. This is a platonic way of viewing reality, that the goal of life is to finally break free from the confines of my own physical limitations, my own bodiliness, and then float up disembodied into this glorious, good spiritual world. That's not Christianity. That's not Christianity. Christianity begins here. In Genesis 1, God saw all that he had made, and behold, it is good. It is good. This material world and everything in it is good. Here's a fundamental premise for us. The devil, he doesn't have his own clay, we might say. Which is another way of saying the devil doesn't have his own ability to create evil. All that he can do, all that he can do as a creature is corrupt, to twist, to distort the good things that God has made. That's all he's capable of doing. He can't just like, evil temptation. And put it in front of us, like the evil witch in Snow White who makes that, that, that really awful poison apple, right? That is in Snow White, right? That is, yes? You're looking at me like I'm crazy. Yes? Okay, good. It's 
it's not like I watched Snow White yesterday, guys, okay? So like, these things just pop in my mind. The devil doesn't have his own clay. He can't just make evil. All he can do is corrupt and twist the good things that God has made. So creation is good because it is the reflection of the creator who is the supreme good. Right? It's the supreme good. The artist, if you will, the artist is reflected in the creation. The artist is reflected in the art. The mind of the artist is present in the creation. The mind of Michelangelo is present everywhere in the Sistine Chapel. The mind of Michelangelo is present everywhere in the Pietà. It's, a, it's the expression, expression, the pressing out of what was in the artist, right? So creation is the expression of the God who is good. And if the God who is good is good, then everything that is pressed out of him must also be good. You with me? I just want to make sure we're not Manichaean or dualistic or Gnostic, any of those things. All right. All of creation is good. All of creation is pointing to, is revealing, is, is just like the Sistine Chapel points back to the creator. All of creation points back to him. Romans 1.20, this is, this is bedrock principle. Ever since the creation of the world, St. Paul says, his, meaning God's, invisible attributes of eternal power and divinity have been able to be understood and perceived in what he has made. As a result, they have no excuse. Here's what St. Paul is saying, that you don't need faith. It's an article of faith that you don't need faith to know that God exists. This was defined by the first Vatican Council, actually. I think it's in Nostra Aetate. That could be wrong. I don't know. <laughs> You're not going to look it up. Okay. It's an article of faith. It's an article of faith that you do not need faith to know that God exists. This comes right out of Scripture. That ever since the foundation of the world, that every civilization, every culture, every person has been able to look at the majesty of creation and has been able to intuit there must be a creator who is responsible for this. You know, one of the things that's been a huge blessing to me coming to this parish is that, so my last assignment, wonderful assignment, great people, uh, great parish, learned a lot, but I was in the city. I was really in the heart of Cleveland. I was in uh, Cleveland Heights, right by the hospitals, universities, on the corner of Cedar and Coventry, which was a very noisy, so many sirens, <laughs> part of the city. Um, so much so, I, some of you have heard me tell this story before, but when I first came here, it was like maybe my first or second night, I, I could not sleep. It was too quiet. Like, it was too quiet. Like, I could hear my heart beating in my head. I'm like, what? Am I having a stroke? Am I having a heart attack? What's going on? And I remember laying there, and like, I had my little Alexa in my room, you know, to play background music. I was like, Alexa, play city noises. And I was lying there, and like, I was going to bed with like, you know, like <laughs> traffic going on in my Alexa. I'm like, oh, thank God, now I can sleep. Right? I've detoxed from this. I've detoxed from this. But now being here in a much more uh, rural, if you will, part of the diocese, it's not really rural, but it's definitely more rural than, than Cleveland Heights. Like, I remember one of those first nights, uh, all the lights in the parking lot were off. I'm not sure if like the timers were misaligned or something. I don't know. But I was out on the front porch. I was smoking my pipe, having a little Jameson. You know, as you do. And um, the lights went off, and then I turned the porch lights off, and the stars. I remember looking up and seeing the stars. I was like, whoa, are these new stars? <laughs> you know, like, have these been here the whole time? Right? 
to glimpse these, these little moments of creation, these unbelievable parts of creation, you are just immediately drawn into wonder. So St. Paul here, what he's saying, of course, is that like unbelievers, if you will, they are without excuse. St. Paul would say, like, have you seen the Grand Canyon? Have you seen the, the bands of the Milky Way? Have you seen like the blooming flowers of spring? Have you seen cherry blossoms? Like, are you kidding me? Just look around you, man. Look around you. Let it stir up your heart. Let it awaken wonder and awe and that question of where did this come from? Who is responsible for all of this beauty and why am I overwhelmed by such a sense of gratitude? Who am I grateful for? That, by the way, is what converted Dorothy Day. Dorothy Day was an intense socialist, atheist, who at the birth of her first child was overwhelmed with gratitude. And she was like, to whom? Who, to whom am I grateful? Like, that's what did it for her, was the overwhelming sense of beauty that came with the birth of her child. Okay, so we're going to ask the question, how does creation speak? Again, or we can maybe put it this way, how does God speak through creation? I said it earlier, and I put it this way, maybe it just sounds weird, but in sign language, in sign language, that all of creation is filled with signs that are pointing to the Lord. And like, and that same Lord, like through whom all things were made, right? Think of the beginning of John's gospel. In the beginning was the word, and that word, word in Greek is logos. Logos means rationality, meaning, purpose, mind, intelligibility, like the, the principle of creation that's behind all of creation. Like that's who Jesus is. John says in his gospel, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Then he says, all things came to be through him. So it's like Jesus looks at everything that exists, every atom, every particle of creation, and it's as if he could say, I remember you. Like, I remember when you were made. I remember when like, your being passed through me, so to speak. Like Jesus knows like the deep sign language in all of creation. So like when you see Jesus in the gospels walking around telling these parables, like it's like he's pulling out of creation all of the deep meaning that was already planted there. Right? Like all those parables that have to do with seeds and fish and wheat and grain and weather and clouds and storms and fig trees and like all of it darkness mustard seed leaven like he's like he's like i know what this reveals i know the story behind this part of creation it's all speaking another way we could say this is that all of creation is iconic and when i mean iconic what i mean there is is the sort of Eastern rite of the, of the Christian church, right? The Byzantines, the Ruthenians, that sort of Eastern rite of Catholicism where they have this beautiful tradition of, of iconography, right? I'm sure we've all, I should have brought some icons down here. But um, yeah, there's none there. But these images in the Eastern rite, the, the theology here is that, that this image is not the thing to be worshiped. What it is is a window through which we have access to the one that it's depicting, right? So all of creation is like a window 
through which we can see a deeper reality. Again, think of the difference between looking at the beam versus looking along the beam. An icon invites us to look along it or through it to the one who's being depicted, who is made present, if you will, by that icon. Most people who are just beginning to look at Christian art and iconography, they are looking at icons. And they'll say things like, I don't like that. It's kind of weird. Jesus got a weird nose. Why are his eyes so big? I'm trying to make him look like an alien? I don't get it. Like they'll say things like, it's just not pretty. It's not supposed to be pretty. It's a window. It's a window. There's something deeper going on here, right? Okay, so <clears throat> I was telling the, we had our middle school youth group on Monday. I was talking to the boys, and uh, I was telling them, we had this whole conversation about masculinity and how, you know, some boys love NFL, some boys love MLB, some boys don't love that stuff. And I was telling them, I was like, when I was your age, when I was growing up, I wasn't the kind of kid who was, who was watching professional sports on TV. I'm like, I... I was so insecure about this growing up. I'm like, I don't, like, I remember learning in college that fantasy football was not a video game. <laughs> yeah, think about how I felt, right? Like, I'm like, is that like on Xbox or something? They're like, what? You are so dumb, right? I was telling them, I was like, I used to love, like, and I still love, I love the, the Discovery Channel, I love the Nature Channel. I loved watching creation when planet earth those series came out when those came out i went nuts like i just wanted to be david attenborough like narrating everything and uh so let's just I mean, this little homage to my like 14 year old self let's just watch this real quick to be just amazed again at how awesome creation is that's the point of this <laughs>
I love that so much. Let's watch it again. Just kidding. All right, moving on. <laughs> I, uh, oh, that's a spoiler alert right there. Okay. How awesome is that? Come on now. All right, let's go back to C.S. Lewis. In the biblical imagination of Christianity, right, we are meant to, we are meant to, um, we're meant to be able to look along every aspect of creation. However, for the last several hundred years, um, certainly beginning a little bit before the Enlightenment, but moving through the Enlightenment into our present day, into our modern era, right, that we've been told that that way of seeing reality, that way of looking at the world around us, is just not real. We've been told that that's like, that's the, that's mythical, that's metaphysical, that's, that's the spiritual mumbo jumbo, that's religious spirituality stuff. Like that's not real. Like the real real is what you can measure and investigate, what you can weigh on a scale, which you can put a test tube. Like the mathematical view of reality is considered the real view. Anything else is just, that's just hooey nonsense. That's like, old, archaic spirituality. Okay, where does this come from? It comes from this guy. René Descartes, remember this mustache? Remember that mustache? You can't forget that mustache. René Descartes, French philosopher who um, was really fed up with, in his own day, he was really fed up with all these different competing philosophies. And uh, he was looking for an indubitable first principle he wanted to find some bedrock first principle that he could not doubt as absolutely true. So he began this process, what he called methodological doubt, where he's just doubting everything. Doubting that the sun is there, doubting that you are there, doubting that there's a heritage or a tradition that I can depend on, doubting that, um, that the, the, the language I have is even giving me real purchase on reality. Like He's just doubting everything. And then he comes to this point where he says, but insofar as I'm doubting, I cannot doubt that I exist. Like, so therefore, what I am is this thinking thing. Like what makes me human is not that I have a body, not that I'm part of a family, not that I'm part of a culture or a society. What makes me human is this spiritual thinking thing that's associated with a body. So this is his bedrock first principle. I think, therefore I am. This, is, this was radical. In the, like this is a, this is a like before and after mark in history, in intellectual history. Because um, before this, all of creation was, was seen as like infused with meaning, infused with the spiritual. Right? So here's the technical word that we would use in the, in the Greek. It's the hylomorphic unity, right? Hilo comes from the Greek, which means earth, and morph or morphe means form. You can think of matter and spirit. So hylomorphic, meaning the bringing together of matter and spirit. Everything is this combination of matter and spirit. And what Rene Descartes got to was, no, 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 no. It's not this unity, it's this rupture. I'm not, I, he's saying, I am not this unity of body and soul. What I am, he says, is this thinking thing that's associated with this body thing. Okay. So this view of reality, this view of like, this, this was a complete radical shift in our understanding of what it meant to be human, but also was a radical shift in our understanding of all of creation. Right? 
everything around us just simply became just brute matter. It wasn't, there was no meaning in anything. It was just stuff. It was just stuff. So this is where, uh, this is where we're going to look at uh, Tony Stark here real quick. Okay, so the, let's look at this quote. I'll come back to Tony Stark in a second. Rene Descartes, who formulated the principle, I think, therefore I am, also gave the modern concept of man its distinctive dualistic character. Dualism meaning two natures, like split apart, right? Dual, two, right? Dualistic, spirit, body. It is typical of rationalism to make a radical contrast in man between spirit and body, between body and spirit. Let's keep going, actually. But man is a person in the unity of his body and his spirit. The body can never be reduced to mere matter. It is a spiritualized body, just as man's spirit is so closely united to the body that he can be described as an embodied spirit. This is St. John Paul II. Okay. We are living right now in an age where Descartes' ideas are being taken to their logical conclusion. Right, so let's go back to this. I think, therefore, I am has now blossomed into I think, therefore, I am whatever I think I am. <laughs> I think I am an Apache attack helicopter trapped in this human body. You will refer to me now as Father If you don't, you'll be canceled. All right? <laughs> I think, therefore, I am whatever I think I am. I was actually told that by a kid at my last parish one time. He's like, Father, uh, you can, I'm going to attach, I'm an Apache tag helicopter now. You can call me. <laughs> I was like, that is unbelievable. <laughs> so the, um, this idea, right? This, we, this is everything in our culture today, right? This split between body and spirit. But this is absurd, right? This is utterly absurd, right? We are, as John Paul II said, the unity of body and spirit, right? If I were to punch you, Eric, you would not say, hey, why did you punch my body's arm? Because that's stupid, right? You would say, why did you punch me? Why did you punch me? I'm like, no, 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 I just punched your arm, man. Or we don't say things like, hey, did you hear that like Jenny's mom's body has cancer? No, we say, did you hear that Jenny's mom has cancer? Right? If, if my body's not in this room, who's not in this room? Me. Yeah, it's not a trick question. Yeah. We are the unity of body and soul. So this idea that like I can be this spiritual floating ghost entity, right? This is why I have Tony Stark on here, right? That we have this view that like... I am this thing that occupies a body and that upon my death, finally, I can be free of this prison of my body, right? This goes back to that Manichaeism, that Platonism, that dualism, right? This, is, this comes right out of, like, our view of the human person now is right out of Rene Descartes. Right out of Rene Descartes. Isn't it crazy? Like, this Frenchie writing in the 1500s has, like, has direct implications on what's happening in our clinics today, Right? 
We are not these things that happen to occupy these bodies. Right? I don't have a body, I am a body. Right? It's the integration of spirit and matter. It's the integration of spirit and matter. It's united. It's united. Let's keep looking at this. Uh, da, 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 da. Pre-Cartesian cultures did not divide reality into two mutually exclusive categories of purely immaterial spirit and purely non-spiritual matter. Rather, they saw all matter as informed, inbreathed by spirit. Descartes initiates angelism when he says, my whole essence is in thought alone. Matter and spirit now become two clear and distinct ideas. This is our common sense. We have inherited these categories like non-removable contact lenses from Descartes, and it is impossible for us to understand pre-Cartesian thinkers while we wear them. Thus, we are constantly reading our modern categories into the authors of the Bible. This is so huge. This is so huge. This is how we, like, we've got these Cartesian glasses on now, right? These Cartesian lenses that are stuck to our faces, and it's so difficult to see the world rightly, right? This is why we're doing this tonight, to begin to take these, like, take these lenses off. To take these lenses off. Because if we are looking at the Bible through these lenses, we're going to think that, like, Jesus came down from the spirit world to the material world to tell us that all this body stuff and material stuff is bad. And like the goal of your life is to die so that your spirit can float up back to the material world and forget all that body stuff. I know that's an exaggeration, but I know every single one of us has at some point, and maybe even tonight, thought that that's what Christianity is. At the center of our faith is a body. At the center of the faith is the flesh. The flesh matters. Matter matters. How do I know that matter matters? Because God himself took on a body. God himself entered into creation. And he wasn't like walking around like Jerusalem going, oh my gosh, this is so gross. I wish I didn't have a body. <laughs> That's how he did. He wouldn't have gotten a lot of followers that way, right? He was, he entered deeply into humanity, right? The, mat, the matter matters. At the culmination of this whole story, all of it, when God wraps everything up, we will all experience what Jesus says in the gospel, the resurrection of the body. We say it in the creed every single Sunday, I believe in the resurrection of the body. Whose body? Our body. Yes, Jesus' body, but our body. St. Paul calls him the first fruits of creation. What's the first fruits? This is also not a trick question. When you've got a heart, when you got crop, the first fruits are, this might shock you, those are the first ones that come up. That's why they call them the first fruits. Yeah? Okay. The first fruits are indicating it's the beginning of an abundant harvest, that more is on the way, right? 
Who is the more that's on the way? He was raised. Who's going to be raised? Us. All of creation is awaiting the redemption of the body, St. Paul says. All of creation. Right, so we now see, because of Descartes, because of all this, we now see the world through these Cartesian lenses. And it's, it's given us this, this, we talked about it during that science uh, uh, session, it's given us this worldview of reductionism, right? That, that we, we reduce explanations to lower and lower levels, right? So like, how do we explain the psychological now? Oh, by referencing... Like, it's just, it's just brain chemistry. Well, how do you explain brain, brain chemistry? Oh, that's just molecular interactions. How do you explain molecular, oh, that's just like atoms. That's just, and that's just quantum stuff. And it just keeps being, getting broken down to smaller and smaller and smaller bits. This sort of nothing but-ism, right? You are nothing but, think of Carl Sagan, you are nothing but a collection of carbon and nitrogen that happens to bear the name of Rich Mishni, right? <laughs> You are nothing but, like, all of those things. It's like, that's not true. How do you know that? Go to a wake. Sit in front of a corpse. There's a difference between a corpse and a living person. Like, it is so clear something is missing. Like, all of the materiality that is, that's there a second after the person dies. All this stuff is there. But why are they not there? There's something more in the matter, right? So we view ourselves, we view reality. Throwing a few more movies at you. Um, who knows where this is from? What's this from? Men in Black, right? There's that scene where you got this, this, this alien guy who's inside this big humanoid thing that you didn't know it was a robot, but like he's, this guy dies, he's in the morgue, and then they like pop open his face, like, right? And you see this little alien guy inside his head who's just like controlling these levers, right? This is how we've, maybe you don't consciously think this, but this is the modern conception of the human person, right? Like, just so happens that this guy was born into the wrong body, apparently. Now you gotta change all of this exterior stuff to match this interior thing. Does this sound familiar? Yeah, welcome to our world, welcome to our world. What you don't ever answer is what's driving him, you know, huh, right? Okay. Iron Man, we already talked about him, right? Okay. The body is just a shell. The body's not just a shell, just a shell. So in this modern worldview, matter doesn't matter. It doesn't, it doesn't mean anything. It's just there. It doesn't mean anything. It doesn't signify anything. It's not significant, right? If it's not significant, that means it doesn't point to anything. It's looking at the beam, not looking along the beam. So if matter doesn't matter, if it's just there dumbly, then it can be manipulated by us. We can change it to match our whims, what we think, what we want. I don't like the matter that I'm made of. Chop this off, give me those, give me that. Make my body match what I want to have it look like on, you know, from this inside perspective. Have it match my spiritual thinking thing. No, 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 no. You are the unity of body and soul. You are the unity of body and soul. Okay, so what is this Catholic sacramental worldview? What does it mean to look along the beam? 
doesn't mean to look along the beam, to look along creation. It starts with this, this bedrock principle, that the invisible is made visible through the physical. The invisible is made visible through the physical. If you could just meditate on this for a while, like this is the logic of Christianity. That the invisible God, who no one has seen, is made visible, how? In his son Jesus, in the physical person. The word is not made text. It's the word made flesh. The word made flesh. The logic, the, the language of Christianity, the, 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 you think of it this way. Like the language of Israel, the, the language of Judaism is, is Hebrew, right? God and the, the Hebrew people, right? The language of Islam is Arabic. God's speaking Arabic in this scripted text. The language of Christianity is the flesh, the body. God's speaking through the body. He came in the flesh to communicate to us. And at the culmination of it all, he says, this is my body given for you. At the center of the mass, you're invited to behold the body of Christ. And then you'll come forward, not just to look, but like, wow, yeah, there he is. Look at that. Okay. No, no. You come forward for his body to enter your body. Flesh to flesh. Flesh to flesh. So the staggering thought at the heart of Christianity is that there is this marriage of spirit and matter. God to humanity, right? That the invisible God is made visible through the physical. It's been brought together. It's been brought together. Let's look at this. Through the incarnation, the church proclaims the absolutely staggering alliance of logos and sarks. Let's pause there. Logos, meaning, back to that word, meaning, rationality, truth, the ultimate meaning behind everything, intelligibility, right? Spiritual, spirit, right? Sarks is the Greek word which means flesh. So Pope Benedict, again, the staggering alliance of Logos and sarks, word and flesh. We could even say meaning and matter. They've been brought together. The meaning that sustains all being, that's Jesus, the logos. He is the meaning that sustains all being, has become flesh. The meaning that sustains all being has become flesh. The second person of the Trinity has become flesh. It has entered history and become one individual in it. This is the thing that, like, <laughs> spend the rest of your life contemplating this. The meaning that sustains all being has entered creation, has become flesh. Like, imagine that. Like, this is what we really claim, that that night, 2,000 years ago, Mary nursing a newborn baby at her breast, was holding 
the meaning that sustains all being. That's what we believe. The meaning that sustains all being had a favorite food. He had friends. He had to go to the bathroom. The meaning that sustains all being, the Logos, was crucified. One of my favorite uh, 20th century short fiction writers is a woman named Flannery O'Connor. She wrote amazing short stories. One of them is this story called Parker's Back. And in this story, the character Parker, he's struggling. And at the culmination of it, he gets this gigantic Byzantine tattoo on his back. The word is made flesh. If you want to meditate on a powerful story that's talking about this bringing together word and flesh, this exactly what Pope Benedict is talking about here, Parker's back is the story for you, but it, it's so good. God draws close to earth. He draws close to matter, and he uses matter. He uses matter to draw close to us. He's not staying distant and aloof. He uses matter to draw close to us. Like, I think about that scene of Jesus. He heals Simon. So Simon, who becomes Peter, heals Simon's Simon's mother-in-law of this fever. And I love how Mark describes it. He says, he approaches, immediately he approached, grasped her by the hand, and helped her up. He approached, grasped her by the hand, and helped her up. That's the, that's the entire story of Christianity in three succinct summary statements. The incarnation, he approached the word is made flesh. He grasps us by the hand. In the resurrection, he helps us up. And he does that in the flesh. He does that in the flesh. God becoming flesh is the central event of history. So Jesus, again, is the visible image of the invisible father, right? He is the visible image of the invisible father. Let's just review. The invisible is made visible through the... Physical. The invisible is made visible through the physical. Jesus, the Word made flesh, makes visible the invisible Father. We can say it this way. He is the one great sacrament. Sacrament meaning the revelation of the invisible mystery. He reveals what's beyond Him. We look at Him, we're looking along the beam, and we see the Father 90-some million miles away. We see the Father. We see Him. We see the Father. All right. Been drinking a lot. Let's just take a break. Five to seven minutes. Drink all the coffee that's over there. Every single one of you. Eat all the chocolate. We'll reconvene, and we'll do some pulse checks in a little bit. What was visible in our Savior? Okay, this is where I want to go. This quote. Um, okay. The God who is simple, uncomposed, and pure spirit himself became incarnate, taking on flesh. The invisible God entered into creation in the physical person of Jesus Christ and became visible. And while he dwelt among us, Christ, the God-man, instituted sacraments to impart his grace and continually give us his life. 
These sacraments are not merely intellectual acts, but are intrinsically stuffy. Just as the invisible God was made visible through the physical person of Jesus of Nazareth, so too God's invisible grace continues to flow mysteriously to humankind through matter in the sacraments of the church. The invisible is made visible through the physical, Jesus, and the invisible continues to be made visible through the physicality of the sacraments. This is where we're going. Pope St. Leo the Great, what is visible in our Savior has passed over into his mysteries. The same word is translated as sacraments. What we saw Jesus doing in his life in the Gospels, reaching out to people, touching Simon's mother-in-law, raising, up, raising her up, curing her of a fever, Jesus curing the blind, curing the deaf, Jesus reaching out, the physical interactions he had with people, that, that, Leo the Great says, that has passed over. It's been infused into the sacraments. So in other words, Jesus continues to reach us through the sacraments. It's not as though, like those people in first century Palestine who had access to Jesus, who were there at the Sermon on the Mount, the people who got to see him walk by the street and hear his preaching and got to witness a miracle. It's not as though, it's not as though those people like, man, that would have been awesome to be one of them. We just, but we just got the sacraments now. Like, they had the real Jesus. They got to touch the real Jesus. We just, you know, we just got the sacraments. No. What was present and real in Jesus of Nazareth has passed over into the sacraments. It's passed over into the sacraments. I said a moment ago that Jesus is the great sacrament. Think of it this way. Jesus is like Pink Floyd. Uh, just kidding. Okay. The white light over here on this side, think of that as Jesus himself. Right? Jesus himself making visible the invisible love of the Father. Jesus himself reaching out, interacting with humanity, imparting grace through his body into people. Jesus himself, the one great sacrament, is refracted through the prism of creation into seven different colors. How many colors do we have in a rainbow? How many sacraments are there? Oh, that's interesting. It's probably a coincidence. I, I don't know. The one great sacrament of Jesus, right? Jesus, I'm making visible the Father. The invisible being made visible through the physical. That one reality is refracted, if you will, in the seven sacraments, which are all, like I said in that quote, like stuffy. There's materiality there. They're not just intellectual acts. It's not just like, okay, let's just think about you being baptized. And now you're baptized. No, no, we got to soak you. We're going to pour water on you. So much water. You're going to be giving up all your secrets like Abu Ghraib, right? You're going to be telling me all your worst things. I'm going to put oil on your head. I'm going to give you a candle, give you a garment, right? It's stuffy. It's material. Matter matters, right? All of the sacraments. The water is poured onto the baby's head. The oil is smeared on the baby's head. Like, it's, it's not an intellectual act. There's a physicality to it. Confirmation, you have to touch 
the person's head. The Eucharist, it's, you have to have bread and wine. To have a valid mass, there has to be alcohol on the altar, which I think is pretty great when you're a Catholic. You can tell people I drink professionally. Some of you just got that. <laughs> okay, physical, right? You come forward, you taste, you see, you smell. All of it is real. It's fleshy, right? People come forward, put the host on their tongue, right? It's touching the body. All of this, it's physical. This is where you're like, okay, but is this physical? Yes, the, sacramental, the sacrament of confession is a physical reality because guess what? You cannot be, you cannot go to confession over Zoom. You know how many people I had to tell that during the pandemic? Like, I, you, you have to come in. You have to come in. Like, but you can't just like do it right now on the phone. No! <laughs> I can't. We can't do that. Being in the flesh matters. Being close matters. When you speak your sins out loud, you are expressing you are sacramentalizing. You are making visible, or we can say audible, like experientiable. You're making visible the invisible, right? Your stuff, your sins, your shame, it's invisibly hidden in your heart. How am I going to get access to it? Only if you express it, press it out. And then this is weird, right? Then the vibrating like muscles in your throat they're making noises. And your lips and your teeth and your tongue are making these stop noises where the air that's coming out of your mouth, it's carrying different um, frequencies. And it travels through air molecules. And it hits, it goes in my ear. And it bombards the eardrum in my ear. And it's shaking these little bones. And it translates that mechanical energy into electromagnetic energy that goes into my brain. And I can understand what was just invisible in you, what was just invisibly hidden in you was made physical into me. How wild is that? So wild. And then the priest or the pope lifts up his hand and sometimes will place his hand on your head and then you hear what comes invisibly out of me, the prayer of absolution, again, through the air, into you. May God give you pardon and peace, and I absolve you from your sins, and I have to make the sign of the cross. Right? Physical. It's physical. The anointing of the sick. You touch the person. You, t you lay your hands on their head. You pray in silence. You take the oil. You put it on their foreheads. You put it on their palms. Again, this is why the pandemic was so crazy, right? To go in, I was like, I'm going in that house. I'm going in that room one way or another. I'll wear a hazmat suit, fine. But I have to touch the person. Like the nurses would often give me these little um, swabby sticks. And you like, you just like do like a Q-tip on the forehead. I'm like, no, no, no. <laughs> Jesus touched lepers. Here we go. All right, like, come on now. Bah! But then you Purell real hard afterwards. Right, that's what you do. That's what you do. You touch. You have to touch. I think it's amazing, right? Like, I have friends who are uh, neonatal nurses. And they talk about, like, the 
infant mortality of babies who are not touched, who are not held. They will literally die if you are not held, if you are not touched. That's why, like, that, that, you know, right at the moment of birth, all of that beautiful skin-to-skin contact is so significant. Like, what is that telling us about our humanity? Like, again, look at that sign language. What is that proclaiming? I'll let you fill in those blanks. Matrimony. The bride and the groom, they, they have to physically come there to be present to each other. They speak those words out loud to each other. They can't just say, like, I mean, you know what I'm thinking. <laughs> you know. <laughs> they have to say it. They have to say it. And then the words that are spoken, the words spoken, the vows spoken, become spoken with their bodies. We're going to talk more on that when we talk about matrimony. It's very physical. Same with priesthood. You recognize that head? <laughs> You lay down on the marble floor. Your hands get anointed with chrism. You, there's a, when you make your promise of obedience, you put your hands up like this, and the bishop puts his hands around your hands to make your promise of obedience. You promise respect and obedience to me and to my successors. And you have to say, I do. You can't just be like... <laughs> <laughs> You have to say it. You have to say it, right? All of it, you have to say it. Okay. So this is the, the sacramental worldview, that knowing that God communicates his grace, he communicates his life through matter. It means that every facet, excuse me, of creation is, is potentially a, a, an a a touch point that can reveal the Lord. Like, think about this. There should ne- there's never a moment in your life, I don't care if you're in church, in a church basement, sitting on the edge of the Grand Canyon, or in like a concrete bunker. I don't care where you are, but at every moment of your life, through creation, God is reaching out to you. Every moment. You can't just think like, well, only in the beautiful moments. No, no, no. Every moment. Through, like, through the things that surround you, he is reaching out to you. So Catholics, again, we have this sacramental worldview. We see the world like, along the beam. Yes, we can look at things. But we are also meant to look along them. We see creation as being filled with God's grandeur. Like it all reveals, it all points to him, it all speaks of him. It's all a touch point that can springboard us to glory. It all becomes a conduit of grace. Everything. Everything. Monsignor Lorenzo Albacetti, who is a close personal friend of John Paul II's and Pope Benedict's, he reflected on on this, he said this, he, he's, first off, he quotes the question of the rich young man in the gospel when he comes up to Jesus and asks him, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What must I do? Albacete says, Christianity, unlike anything else, says that if you want to find this mystery, this infinite one, 
God himself, it's already present within this world. Look inside your own humanity. Look deeper into it because the mystery was made flesh. The mystery entered this world. And I love this word that he uses. And is seducing me in every drop of rain that falls. It's wooing me. It's, it's drawing me. In every drop of rain that falls, in every blade of grass, in every bird and bumblebee, in every traffic jam, in everything, he's seducing me. You begin to see that this is the true nature of reality. It's symbolic capacity. It's sacramentality. That beauty is seducing us. And without clinging to the finite, we must allow it to inspire our yearning for the infinite, the infinite. Beauty with a capital B. So again, pause. He's saying everything around us, everything around us, if we look along the beam, it's, it's leading us to the infinite one, right? All of the Sistine Chapel, every drop of pain in the Sistine Chapel points to Michelangelo. Every blade of grass in creation points to the creator. If we allow the things of creation that draw us, the things of creation that capture our attention, our imagination, the things of beauty that cause us to pause, He's saying, if you allow that to happen, you will look along it and you'll see the infinite God beyond it. This is the process of conversion. Again, that question, what must I do? I must become overwhelmed by beauty, by beautiful things, by finding beauty everywhere. Allow yourself to be overwhelmed by beauty. And this, this is what it's all about. This is what it's all about. We're going to end with this. This is, uh, I'm not even going to explain it. God's Grandeur by Gerard Manley Hopkins. The world is charged with the grandeur of God. It will flame out like shining from shook foil. It gathers to a greatness like the ooze of oil crushed. Why do men then now not wreck his rod? Generations have trod, have trod, have trod. And all is seared with trade, bleared, smeared with toil, and wears man's smudge, and shares man's smell. The soil is bare now, nor can foot feel being shod. And for all this, nature is never spent. There lives the dearest freshness deep down things, and though the last lights off the black west went, O oh morning, at the brown brink eastward springs, because the Holy Ghost over the bent world broods with warm breast and with ah, bright wings.